Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. All right, welcome everyone. Sawadikap. Hello, welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm uh, really glad that you guys are here today. We've got a really interesting program scheduled over the next five to six months of having these regular talks where I'll be able to share with you guys the teachings of Gautama Buddha, guide you along this path of enlightenment that uh, Gautama Buddha has shared with us so many years ago. Today we're going to be talking about the universal teachings of love all beings, doing no harm, and be a good moral person. But before we do, before we get into the first chapter, I would like to start off where I start off all the students that I teach here in Chiang Mai and other parts of the world, is sharing with you guys just a little bit of how to really get started on this path. What's really important as you get started is that you understand Gautama Buddha's teachings are not meant to be believed. Okay, this is very, very important. It's so critical. There's no belief whatsoever in these teachings of Gautama Buddha's. Belief does not liberate the mind. Belief will not create enlightenment. Belief will not allow you to attain this mental state of complete peace, calm, serenity, and contentness of mind with joy. So right here, the very first thing I would like to share with you guys as your teacher is don't believe anything that I say. And and I really, truly mean that. Do not believe anything that I say, that I ever tell you, that I ever share with you in a post, an email, chat, uh, in-person discussion, or, or here in this classroom. Don't ever believe anything I say. It's important that you understand what I'm sharing with you as teachings and that you reflect on those teachings and then you observe the truth for yourself in practice. This is the only way that you will attain wisdom is through your own observation of the truth. Gautama Buddha's teachings, we have the three universal truths, we have the four noble truths, We have all these various natural laws and things that Gautama Buddha knew as wisdom and truth. And this is why his mind was liberated and he had attained enlightenment. But in order for you to attain enlightenment, in order for you to attain this mental state, you need to observe these same truths as well. And you can't observe the truth if you just believe what your teacher tells you. So please don't believe me because it's not going to help you if you just believe me. What's important is that you listen, that you learn, that you reflect, that you ask questions, that you do some reading, 
use some of the other materials that I'm going to share with you guys throughout this course and that you truly get in touch with the teachings, rolling up the sleeves, diving the hands in and just really absorbing the understanding. And if there's something that's confusing or needs clarity or you want to discuss a certain aspect of the teachings, feel free to talk about that. If you disagree with me on a certain topic, feel free to talk about that and bring that up. I welcome you to disagree because we can actually disagree very politely, very respectfully, uh, and very kindly. But if what I share, if you don't tell me you disagree or you don't share with me that you're not seeing what I'm sharing and what I'm helping to guide you towards, if you're not telling me or you're not speaking up either in this classroom or outside of this classroom through chat or in the discussion group through posting in Facebook, if you're not sharing that with me, then I have no ability to help clarify what's in your mind from either other places that you've learned or other things that you've read or things that you're just thinking on your own. And, and that's good that you're thinking on your own. It's important that you do that. That's reflecting. So please don't believe anything that I say. We can discuss, we can have very healthy, polite, respectful discussion, and that's going to lead to you acquiring more wisdom because you're going to be able to independently observe the truth for yourself. I got this great analogy from a good friend not too long ago, and he used Santa Claus to talk about this. And essentially, by the time you get to enlightenment, you have an unshakable mind. Nobody can shake your mind off of what you know to be the truth because you understand what it was like to be angry and frustrated and irritated and shy and bored and lonely, have guilt and shame, all of these discontent feelings, you've experienced those. So by the time you get to enlightenment and all those things are gone, you know for yourself that those things are gone. However, that only happens if you're observing the truth and you get this wisdom and you eliminate belief. You've actually already done this on other topics in your life. For example, Santa Claus. Most people in the world these days grew up believing in Santa Claus. And at some point in your life, you discovered the truth. The truth was either shared with you or you observed it for yourself. If you're like me, my sister came and told me that she saw mom and dad eating the, the cookies and milk. And that's how she found out. She saw the truth for herself and she shared it with me. I was actually a little bit angry at that time at eight years old because my parents lied to me. I was starting off early in life knowing that my parents were lying to me. So that bothered me. But nonetheless, I discovered the truth and so did you. And you have wisdom. And now your mind is unshakable on that topic. It doesn't matter how much I talk to you, how much somebody else talks to you. It doesn't matter how many books you read that discuss Santa Claus. It doesn't matter how many songs you hear, how many Santas you see in the mall. Your mind is unshakable because you no longer have the belief of Santa Claus and you have the wisdom that he doesn't exist. And that's why I could never convince you that Santa Claus exists. Well, all of these truths that Gautama Buddha shared with us that have become wisdom or will become wisdom over the course of this program, your mind will slowly, gradually become unshakable 
on all these various topics. As you learn them in this classroom, as you read them in books, the book that I share, as you see videos, as you take quizzes, as we have discussion in the Facebook group, as you listen to podcasts, your mind will become gradually unshakable. And I will help guide you in that. But it's you that has to do the work. You have to learn. You have to roll up the sleeves. You have to dig in and do the work. But the great thing is by you doing the work, you're going to see that certain things that today maybe make you angry or frustrated or bored or you feel guilty or shame or what have you, over time, you will gradually see that these feelings will start to dissipate. I've taught students within a few days on a certain few topics, they will notice that, wow, that didn't even bother me like it used to. And I didn't feel anything at all. And I just let it go. Um, I hear this from students all the time. So the way that they get to that is they don't believe me. So don't believe me, ask questions, and we'll make room for that as we go through the talk. All right, so no belief. Learn, grow, reflect, observe the truth for yourself. The next thing that I, I want to talk about is just really thanking you guys for choosing to, to study Gautama Buddha's teachings. It's absolutely the very best thing that you could ever do for your life and for the people around you and for all of humanity. Because by you learning Gautama Buddha's teachings, essentially what he's doing in his teachings is he's awakening the mind to the natural law of gamma. Now, you've probably heard the word karma used in the past. This is the Sanskrit version of the word, but Gautama Buddha's teachings are captured in the Pali language. So I will use nibbana, gamma, dhamma, but I use these very rarely. I, I use all English, but gamma is the only word that doesn't really translate into one word in the English language. Nibbana is enlightenment, dhamma is the teachings, but gamma doesn't translate into English in just one word. But essentially what Gautama Buddha is doing in his teachings is awakening the mind to this natural law of gamma, cause and effect, action and result. Essentially for everything that we do, every action, every cause, there's going to be effect and a result. So things like if I go murder somebody, there's going to be an effect. I may go to jail even if I'm, I don't go to jail, I'm probably going to be on the run and be very fearful, looking out over my shoulder quite a bit. I'm going to have unwholesome things come back to me because I did something unwholesome, which is killing. If I committed sexual misconduct, this is an unwholesome action. So unwholesome things are going to happen for me. So we're going to get into a lot of the details of the natural law of gamma, because that's essentially what the Buddhist teachings are doing, is awakening everyone's mind to the natural law of gamma. I understand in the West that the teachings of gamma are not very well rooted in most communities, but this is vitally important that we understand gamma more and more, and we'll actually devote a good amount of time to this in the future. But what I want to share here is the natural law of gamma is just like the natural law of gravity. 
when you were two, three, four, five years old, you were affected by the natural law of gravity. You weren't aware of it. You didn't know it existed. You didn't know that what it was called. You just knew that every time you took a glass or you took a toy or something, or you tried to stand up and walk, you knew that you just kept on falling. And the more and more that you became aware of this natural law and how it affects you and all the things around you, you became able to function in the world more conducively, more peacefully. You had a more pleasant experience in life because your understanding, your awakenness of this natural law of gravity became more and more. And that's why we can now function in the world with this natural law. You can't see gravity. You don't know where it is. You just know that it exists because what you studied about it and what you observe to be truth, you see the truth and you have wisdom of the natural law of gravity. So the natural law of gamma is exactly the same. That right now, the vast majority of the world is unaware or unknowing of this natural law of gamma. However, even though people are unaware of it, they are absolutely still affected by it. You are affected by this natural law every moment of your life, and you have been for every moment of your life. And this is why we experience wholesome things and unwholesome things. This is why we have good experiences and we have bad experiences in life is because of this natural law. And because the mind is unawakened to this natural law, this is the reason why people have trouble functioning and conducting a peaceful life and they have trouble attaining a peaceful mind because they're unaware of this natural law. So essentially what I'm going to be doing through this course and through the guidance that I give you during the week is providing you guidance to help you better understand this natural law so that your mind can awaken to it and now you can function in the world more peacefully, more conducively, and have a better experiences just like you do now that your mind is fully awake to the natural law of gravity, okay? So it's the natural law of gamma that is really the overarching understanding that the Buddha is bringing to everybody's mind as part of his teachings. And every single aspect of his teachings is cluing you in closer and closer and closer to this natural law. And the more that you understand that natural law and you practice the teachings to observe how what he's teaching is actually working, the more awake the mind is going to become and you're going to be able to function more peacefully uh, in the world and your mind is going to be more peaceful. And as you gain more and more peace, you're going to notice that the vast majority of the world is very unaware of this natural law. We're aware of natural law of gravity, but the natural law of gamma is not well understood by the vast majority of public. So that's what the Buddhist teachings are really going to be working to help you do is awaken the mind to the natural law of gamma. Okay, so as I mentioned, we're going to be getting into discussing the natural law of gamma all the way through this course. I just wanted to kind of introduce you to what we're really doing in these teachings of Gautama Buddha is studying the natural law of gamma and awakening the mind to that. And the more that you do that, 
the more peaceful the mind becomes, the more peaceful your life becomes, the more easy your interactions with all the people around you, and you'll be able to attain this mental state of nibbana or enlightenment, which is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Okay? So now on to today's topic, which is chapter one, the universal teachings, love, no harm, and good morals. That is essentially a subtitle to the longer understanding of what I'm sharing in this chapter, which is universal love of all beings, do no harm, and be a good moral person. Essentially what I'm doing in this first chapter is providing a bridge for people because the Buddhist teachings for some, they may feel that they're kind of untouchable or something that they're not able to pursue. Unfortunately, there are places in the world where people refer to Gautama Buddha as Lord Buddha, or some places in the world consider him a god or an avatar. Some people say that Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God. You hear all these different rumors about what the Buddha said on various topics related to these other traditions of teachings. But in reality, you know, the vast majority of the teachings that we see in other traditions didn't exist during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, so he didn't have any comments about Christianity or Jesus Christ. He didn't have any comments about Prophet Muhammad because he was unaware of these teachings and these people because they didn't exist uh, prior to him. The main thing that was around uh, during Gautama Buddha's lifetime is Hinduism and the practices of Hindu priests. Essentially what they were doing at that time is about 15% of the society were Brahmin priests or Hindu priests. And this was a caste system that was basically made up of this special group of people that were said to be able to pray to God on behalf of everybody else. So if all of us are farmers and workers and shopkeepers, we are just kind of common people that were unable to, at that time, interact with the main tradition in that part of the world, which was uh, Hinduism or Brahmanism. And essentially, there was lots of different gods was the belief at that time. And us sharecroppers or us farmers or shopkeepers would pay money to these Brahmins in order to have them go pray on our behalf. And somehow that was going to make our life better. And that was the belief at the time. Well, when Gautama Buddha came in and he eventually attained enlightenment, he knew that these practices were going on and he saw that there was corruption. And the corruption was that essentially Today, it might have been one price in order to so-called, you know, pray on your behalf, but then tomorrow it was a different price. And because the belief was that you had no ability to attain a better life without these prayers from these priests, then the corruption was able to kind of run away rampant and people had challenges to see how their life was being put together, how they were gonna improve the quality of their life because they were essentially paying all this money at the whim of priests. So Gautama Buddha shared with people that worship and rites and rituals and ceremony are not part of what it takes in order to attain this mental state of Nibbana or enlightenment. 
Because remember, the core part of his teachings is awakening everyone's mind to gamma. And one thing that you need to understand about gamma is you are the only person who can create gamma for yourself. Nobody else can generate gamma for you. You are the owner, the heir, the originator of your own gamma, and so is everybody else. So if somebody else is doing something unwholesome, that's their gamma. So what Gautama Buddha was sharing is that these farmers and sharecroppers and shopkeepers who are going to pay and have somebody else do some kind of spiritual ceremony on their behalf, it wasn't benefiting those people because they weren't doing anything other than making money and giving it to somebody else. So there was no real benefit there. But if you look at what the Brahmin were teaching, if you look at Hinduism and ultimately, you know, Jesus Christ and Prophet Muhammad's teachings, if you look at these and you interact with people from these traditions, what it all comes down to is essentially what Gautama Buddha was also teaching. They had different ways of explaining it. They had different cultures and different customs, but essentially all of these original teachers and all of these world traditions that we have that guide humanity, they're essentially teaching these three core teachings, these three core things, which is universal love for all beings, do no harm, and be a good moral person. How that actually gets executed and what that looks like in each tradition is very different depending on who's doing the teaching and who's doing the interpretation and who's sharing various things. And this is where I feel that Gautama Buddha's teachings really excel. This is where his teachings really make it 100% clear and concise in what you should and shouldn't be doing because his teachings are not based on belief. They're based on you being able to independently observe the truth for yourself that your mind was once angry or frustrated or bored or lonely. And over time, your mind eliminates these discontent feelings. You can observe the benefits and you can observe the results of these teachings and slowly, gradually attaining enlightenment on your own. It's independently verifiable. His teachings are independently verifiable. This is why belief isn't part of his teachings. While many temples and many places that practice Gautama Buddha's teachings today do have ceremonies and do have various things that they're doing, these are all misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings and what he actually taught originally. These things, ceremonies, mantras, certain statues, certain beads, everybody has to be in a particular position to do meditation. These are all things that weren't taught by Gautama Buddha. He never taught worship. He never taught belief. It was always about sharing teachings, guiding people on the path, and then allowing them to learn and practice those teachings so they could observe the truth and gain wisdom for themselves. So while all these teachings, I feel from my experience, are leading humanity in a certain direction of universal love for all beings, do no harm and be a good moral person, they're all using different language and different descriptions in order to share it with the people. Gautama Buddha had 45 years. He had a lot of time to be able to share his teachings, impart his teachings, 
make sure he guided as many people as possible to enlightenment during his lifetime. 45 years is, you know, a really, really long period of time in terms of a lifetime. It's essentially uh, more than half of his life because he became enlightened at the age of 35 and then he had 45 more years to teach in order to make sure people became enlightened. When you attain enlightenment, you have such clarity of mind, such focus, such ability to speak very clear and concisely. You can also memorize, have a profound memory when you have attained enlightenment because you're no longer carrying the burden of these attachments and the things that, that put stress on the mind. So the mind is liberated and free to have a great memory. So in 45 years, he taught many, many, many people that were able to attain enlightenment and memorize his teachings. This amounted to essentially 45 volumes of books. Um, when I say 45 volumes, I mean, you know, 45 volumes of books. This is, this is number 11, okay? Um, enormous books. It probably would take maybe 10 or 15 years for somebody to read all the teachings that were shared when they finally got written down about two or 300 years later. The teachings that we have from some of the other teachers, while they're leading, I feel, leading people to essentially the same mental state, they're describing it in different ways. And the teachings that have been shared with us now so many years later have been highly affected by impermanence. They've been changed. They've been modified. They've been translated and retranslated. They've been interpreted and reinterpreted. And the people that were doing that work weren't necessarily enlightened to the point where they had profound memories with very clear and concise wording. Where Gautama Buddha's teachings were in the hands of enlightened beings being handed down for 2,500 years without the interest to really change. And of course, in some communities, they have changed. But here in Thailand and in other parts of the world that practice this tradition, our real focus is to not change what Gautama Buddha taught because he's the Buddha. He's the one who discovered this on his own. He became self-enlightened. He understood the path very, very well, and he led lots and lots of other people to enlightenment. So we're not interested in changing the teachings, but instead sharing those with other people so that they can experience the same mental state of Nibbana. It's kind of like if you discovered the cure to cancer, you're not going to want to change that. You're going to want to share it with as many people as possible so that they won't die and they can get cured of cancer too. So Buddha discovered essentially the cure to cancer, which is the cure to the discontent mind. And when other people attained this mental state through his knowledge and wisdom, they didn't want to change the teachings. They were interested in having other people experience the same mental state as well. So when Gautama Buddha taught, his teachings are independently verifiable. They lead to this clear, concise mind with a strong, profound memory. And they've been handed down all the way here in Thailand to the point where now we have a very good representative collection of his teachings that lead to enlightenment or lead to Nibbana. With that said, when I look at Jesus Christ's teachings, and remember, I wrote this chapter to help people who have background in Jesus Christ's teachings or in Prophet Muhammad's 
teachings or even uh, Hindu teachings and other traditions, or even an atheist, somebody who has no belief in God whatsoever. I was interested in making sure that this book was approachable by all human beings and that nothing stood in the way, whether it was prior knowledge in other traditions or no knowledge at all and not having any spiritual background at all. But when I look at Jesus Christ's teachings and I've studied his teachings very, very closely, what I see is I see somebody who's describing this state of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and when I understand Gautama Buddha's teachings on the five precepts, the Eightfold Path, and all of the things that you guys are going to learn in this program, I can very easily see that these teachings are completely integrated in terms of what Gautama Buddha and Jesus Christ were both talking about. Now, Jesus Christ spent a lot more time talking about God and prayer and these kind of things where Gautama Buddha he never denied the existence of God. He just suggested that people don't be attached and look for change through God, but they actually implement their own change through learning and practicing the teachings. But when I talk to people who have attained what they would call the Holy Spirit, and they have no understanding of what enlightenment is at all, I ask them questions about the Holy Spirit through my understanding of enlightenment. And I say, somebody who has attained the Holy Spirit, are they able to get angry? Do they get angry? They say, no, it's absolutely impossible. Someone with the Holy Spirit will never experience anger. And I ask other questions along this line. I have great confidence that what Jesus Christ was talking about with the Holy Spirit and all of his teachings about not lying, about not killing, about not stealing, about not having sexual misconduct, all the other things talking about purposeful speech and having good speech and certain deeds and certain actions, even to the point of kama, where Gautama Buddha talked about if you do unwholesome things, unwholesome things happen. If you do wholesome things, uh, wholesome things will happen. Jesus Christ said, you essentially reap what you sow. He said, you reap what you sow. Essentially, whatever you plant, that is what will come back to you, right? This is what Jesus Christ was talking about when he was talking about you reap what you sow. Essentially, he was talking about gamma. Some people even feel that Jesus Christ never taught rebirth or the cycle of rebirth, which is a, a big one that we'll get into as part of these teachings. But Jesus Christ himself said that he was going to be reborn. He said he was going to be reborn. The teachings that we have don't say that everyone else is going to be reborn, but Jesus Christ said he was going to be reborn. So there's a lot of things where nowadays people like to label this person is Hindu, this person is Buddhist, this person is Christian, this person is Muslim. But for me, these are all just labels. At the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all are looking and aspiring to do better in the world. We're all looking to live a better, more peaceful, conducive life where we interact with each other in a very peaceful way. And rather than labeling these various practitioners and these various traditions in different ways, and then we discuss the differences and there's warring or fighting because of that, what I choose to do is I look at all these worldly traditions and I look at all the, the similarities. They're so 
glowing. They're so unmistakable that there's so many similarities between these. As you learn about Gautama Buddha's teachings, he talks about how the mind is gradually trainable. The mind gradually trains toward enlightenment. And you will observe that in your own practice, that your mind gradually awakens. Well, if you understand that about your own mind, then as a collective society and all of humanity, humanity's mind does the same thing as a collective group of people. We are all gradually evolving, gradually awakening. Essentially, the species is evolving. And what we started out with is, you know, far, far back, who really knows? But, you know, I kind of look at Hinduism as perhaps one of the older traditions that were around. And from there, what we've got is we've got meditation practices that made their way and Gautama Buddha started doing meditation and that was part of his teachings. He became very, very awake and then he shared his teachings through his lifetime. Later, we get Jesus Christ who's talking about a lot of the same things that Gautama Buddha was talking about using his own language. Then, and, and by the way, during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, there was a belief in a lot of different gods and Gautama Buddha didn't have evidence that either proved the existence of God or denied the existence of God. So he just told people, don't be attached to God. So it was Jesus who came in and said, there's only one God. And there's people in the world now that believe there's more than one God, but by and large, the vast majority of humanity, if they believe in God, they believe that there's only one God. And this was by benefit of Jesus Christ. And he really only taught for a very limited amount of time before they killed him. So his teachings, you know, only are collected into kind of one book, the, the Bible. And then later we get Prophet Muhammad's teachings, who also respects Jesus Christ, right? And there's even evidence that shows that Jesus Christ may have studied Buddhism. So if you look at these kind of four big traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and uh, Islam tradition, you can see this thread running through them from meditation and Hinduism to Gautama Buddha doing meditation and then awakening the mind and not being attached to God, to Jesus Christ saying, okay, there's only one God, to Prophet Muhammad coming in and, and showing you know, a certain prayer discipline, and connecting some of his teachings to Jesus Christ. And to me, this looks very much like all of humanity gradually evolving and moving towards a more awakened state. And as I talk to more and more people, whether it's Christians or Muslims or Hindus, or even non-faith practitioners who are practicing quantum physics, who are awakening the mind through completely modern terms, in talking to Buddhists too, what I hear people talking about is this mental state where the mind no longer experiences anger, frustration, shame, guilt, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, you know, right on down the line. But what I see is these various traditions using different language, different vocabulary, different cultural context in order to explain the teachings. So to me, what I see is I see this human phenomenon 
that in this tradition we call enlightenment or nibbana, this human phenomenon of the mind awakening. We call it enlightenment, nibbana. A Christian may call it the Holy Spirit. A Muslim may call it the Holy Spirit. I believe that Hindus also call it enlightenment or nirvana, right? So all of these traditions are essentially guiding humanity in practices of universal love for all beings, do no harm either to each other or to the planet or to other living beings, and to be a good moral person. And when you look at the teachings at a granular level and you try to look for similarities, you will see these similarities are unmistakable. And this is why the more I talk to people, I truly feel that this is a, a mental state that is a human phenomenon that is achievable through these various paths if you're really in touch with the teachings. Back to Jesus Christ teachings. I discovered something called a red-inked Bible. When I looked at the red-inked Bible, the red ink is Jesus's words and the black ink is all the other people around him. When I read a red ink Bible, only Jesus's words, those words are describing essentially what Gautama Buddha was teaching as well. And I've met people from all these different traditions that f seem to me to be very much awake, very much a kind, polite, peaceful, a serenity of mind, focus, concentration, you know, very humble, eliminating the ego, these kind of things. So there's these various paths that have been laid out to us over the course of human history that someone can probably attain this mental state or this human phenomenon that we call enlightenment through these various paths. However, for me, Gautama Buddha said it so clearly and so concisely and with his teachings being independently verifiable, not based on belief, they really do lead exactly where he says that they lead. They're independently verifiable and you can get in touch with them, you can observe them, you can see the truth for yourself. So the way that I think about it is we've got Professor A, B, C, D, all these original teachers from Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam tradition. Well, for me, Professor A really knocks it out of the park. Professor A, Gautama Buddha, says it so clearly, so concisely. I see exactly what I need to do as a practitioner. I can independently verify his teachings. And he describes for me exactly what the results are and what I should be working towards. He's describing this mental state of enlightenment. And I can see where Jesus Christ and the others are doing the same thing as well. They also made benefits and contributed something to the world, to humanity. All these other teachers absolutely contributed something to the world. So we can actually practice these other teachings of other teachers while we're learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. It's kind of like if you were in college and you were studying about marketing, and that's the topic, and you had Professor A, B, C, and D, where Professor A may be really good for Max and Professor B might be really good for, for Johnny and Roberta. Professor C might be really good for Bill or Maya or Karen. And all of us really kind of have an affection for one particular professor in college that's teaching us about marketing. But all the other professors contributed something to our understanding of marketing as well that definitely helped the world to awaken more and more and helped us individually. 
So essentially what I'm sharing is that Gautama Buddha for me is Professor A. He says it very, 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 very clearly. But these other teachers and these other traditions have something to offer to the world as well. And they have their path to this mental state and they have their language and cultural understanding of how to explain it. What I'm going to be sharing in this program is what Gautama Buddha shared, what I observe to be truth through Gautama Buddha's teachings. And I'm going to use as many resources as possible to share with you guys to help you guys see that truth as well. And I think what you'll find is that it's independently verifiable. You can see it for yourself with some discussion, with some reflection, with some reading, with some watching videos and podcasts. You'll be able to get in touch with these very clear and very concise teachings as well. But that doesn't mean that you need to completely throw out everything else that you learn and everything else that you've been exposed to in your life. If you've got a background with Jesus's teachings or uh, Hindu uh, teachings or uh, Islamic teachings or Jainism or any of these other traditions, you can absolutely understand those things and those are what helped lead you to where you are today, right now at this moment. But what I'm going to be sharing with you is what Gautama Buddha taught. And then I will provide you by the time we get through towards the end of this program in chapter 19, I'll be sharing with you about how you can practice these other traditions more specifically while also practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because we know that it's craving, desire, attachment that keeps the mind in this discontented state. So if we are going to be a practitioner that prays alongside of meditation and other things that we do, and we're constantly asking God for things, that means the mind is craving and desiring. You're not going to be able to attain awakeness and enlightenment with learning Gautama Buddha's teachings and still praying in that way. Not saying that you shouldn't pray, not saying that a relationship with God isn't important, because if that's what you're currently practicing, then I think it is important. But if you practice prayer in that way, then the mind's craving and desiring, and you're gonna have a hard time to let those things go in order to awaken the mind. So I will share some more specific teachings with you in chapter 19 once we get the bulk of Gautama Buddha's teachings uh, discussed and understood, that will be the appropriate time to kind of introduce, well, now that you understand Gautama Buddha's teachings really well, you're probably going to start seeing some connections over to some other traditions, and that's a good time to start helping you to understand how you can practice those things and Gautama Buddha's teachings at the same time. Now, if you don't have any traditions whatsoever, or you have decided to completely wipe the slate clean and eliminate all that other stuff from the mind, then that's only going to help you to have more of a clean slate in this program. It's hard to say that you're actually a clean slate. You know, we kind of say that whenever we're starting a new learning opportunity, but there's still conditioning there in the mind. There's still things that you've learned that need to be taught and understood and, and shared. So as much as possible, I would ask you to try to have a clean slate, but I know that that's impossible. It's unrealistic. And I don't expect that from you. I would like you to ask questions about other things that you have learned, because that's only going to help you to reflect on those things based on what Gautama Buddha actually shared.
But this mental state that we're working towards, this enlightened mental state, this awakening, this nibbana, it is essentially what all these other teachers are sharing and guiding you to. So if you do have a practice in some other tradition, you can still maintain that and you're actually working towards the same goal of those other teachers and those other traditions. And that's why I put this chapter at the very beginning so that students and readers could see that what Gautama Buddha is teaching actually goes right along with everything else that you've already learned. But I think what you're going to find is Gautama Buddha says it very clear, very concise, in a way that you can independently observe the truth for yourself. I saw Karen raise her hand. I think there's an electronic way to do it as well, just in case we don't see you by eyesight. Max is going to so unmute just, you. Just unmute you, Karen. Oops, I just unmuted myself. Please go ahead. Okay, um, David, well, thank you very much for your teachings. I have one question that I thought perhaps uh, goes along uh, with what you're discussing right now. And before I forget <laughs> that I would ask, um, regarding other traditions, uh, what about other Buddhist traditions, such as Tibetan Buddhism? There are a lot of ceremonies and a lot of so tantric chanting, deities, etc. Um, that was actually how I was introduced to Buddhism, and I've been kind of going along as good as possible. Um, but it's very confusing and it's very difficult and I live very remote. And so is that more of a distraction, do you feel? I would say yes, because Gautama Buddha shared very clearly the 10 fetters. And these are essentially the 10 taints or the 10 fetters. Uh, fetter is like a ball and chain that keeps you trapped in the cycle of rebirth. And even to get to the first stage of enlightenment, one has to realize and understand that ceremony, rites, rituals, mantras, these things, worship, that they don't lead to enlightenment. Um, it doesn't matter how many strings I have a Thai monk tie around my wrist or how many mala beads I count or um, how, many, how many wheels that I spin in a temple, you're not gonna instantly gain enlightenment. From what I've observed and I think what's happened, and I don't have any proof of this, but I'll just share with you what I think on this. Gautama Buddha, when he taught, a lot of people were awakening. And in that first 500 years, he gives five 500-year cycles. And in that first 500 years, people were very strong in the teachings and a lot of people became awakened during that first 500 years. Then there's four proceeding, a total of five, 500-year cycles that he discussed that essentially got further and further away from his teachings. And we just ended the last 500-year cycle where he discussed that lay people and monks amongst their own communities and each other, they would be arguing and fighting over what are actually his true teachings. They would essentially have disappeared from the earth. And that's essentially what we're seeing here. What I feel has happened is People early on became very, very awakened and they stuck very true to the teachings. And that group got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. But there were people kind of on the fringes that were still practicing his teachings and got a certain level of awakening. But as awakening happens, it happens very gradually. And one aspect of awakening is we need to dissolve the ego. 
right? The ego always wants us to think we're important, we're significant, we're so great, and a lot of other things that we'll talk about when we get to that chapter. But as the core group that was really sticking close to Gautama Buddha's teachings got smaller and smaller and smaller, I feel that these people on the fringes were still getting a certain level of awakening, but the ego was still present. And, you know, there's a group of 20 or 30 monks or lay people that said, oh, well, we've got this certain level of awakening and the Buddha's got it all wrong. There isn't five realms. There's actually eight realms or there's 32 realms. And, oh, he kind of got it wrong that it's not supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be like that. Well, anybody who is practicing these teachings closely and really respects Gautama Buddha highly isn't going to start monkeying with the teachings because what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that he discovered this path on his own individually. And what makes a Buddha so potent in his teachings is that he isn't influenced by other teachers. So, for example, if there's a monk here in Thailand, and there, there are monks here that are enlightened, and we know this because we can observe it in their behaviors and how they teach and other people are getting enlightened by learning with them. But that monk has probably seen, you know, 10, 20, 30 different teachers in order to get to that level of enlightenment. And maybe 60, 80 percent, even maybe 90 percent of what they know led to their actual enlightenment. But they still have maybe 10, 20, 30 percent of stuff that is extra stuff that isn't real true that led to enlightenment because they were being influenced by all these different teachers and they're just kind of out of habit doing what their teachers told them out of respect and appreciation for these teachers. What a Buddha is going to do is they're going to be aware and have a certain realization of some wisdom or knowledge. They're going to practice that and see, does that lead my mind to further stability further peace, further calm, further serenity of mind, further contentedness? If yes, okay, that's part of the path. If no, I discard it. And then they get the next thing and the next realization. And they're not getting it from another teacher. They're getting it from their own realizations. And they're doing this with each individual thing. So by the time a Buddha gets to enlightenment, the only thing that they have is the actual path. That's the only thing that they have. They don't have the erroneous influences from all the other teachers. So while the Buddha studied for two years with two specific teachers initially, they were teaching him to disparage the body, to starve the body, to hang it upside down from trees. He was realizing this isn't leading his mind to awakenness. He is not getting more contentedness as part of these teachings. So that's why he went off on his own for additional four years in the forest where he eventually reached this state of enlightenment on his own. And when he came out of the forest, he knew exactly what it took to get to enlightenment because he wasn't influenced by anyone else. Anything that his previous teachers were teaching him, he discarded that. And at first, when he entered into the forest, he was still starving himself, but he had the realization that this wasn't going to work. So while he was in the forest, that's when he practiced on his own. He discovered on his own. He became enlightened on his own. As he provided teachings to other people, they became enlightened and noticed that they were enlightened. As he interacted with other teachers, 
they could tell that he was enlightened and a lot of those teachers brought their students with them and became students of the Buddha. Or in some cases, those teachers got angry and left and their students became students of the Buddha. So this other traditions of Mahayana, of Vajrayana, of Zen Buddhism, they all kind of have some resemblance of what Gautama Buddha taught, but there's a lot of extra stuff that is accumulated. And I'm sure that there's people there that are awakened and, and, and maybe have some level of awakening, but there's a lot of extra stuff and using your language, distractions. So in this program, if you can ask me questions about those things like you did now, but also if you can set those things aside and only practice what I'm teaching you, then you'll know what's leading to results. So if you're practicing the meditations that I give you and you're doing the mantras that other people gave you, you're not going to know 100% of what it is that led to your awakening. So if you're able to set things aside, that would probably be best. But until you're enlightened, your mind's going to want to hold on to things. And the mind doesn't like impermanence. So when you start changing things, it's probably going to feel uncomfortable for you. But even if you do part of what I'm doing or, or, or all of what I do and keep a little bit of that other stuff, that's at least a half a step forward rather than no steps forward. So that's a great question. We have a lot of different teachings in the world, but I can absolutely share with you that what I'm sharing with you is what Gautama Buddha taught and it will lead to awakening the more you learn it, understand it and practice. Of course, no teacher can guarantee that their students are going to become awakened or attain enlightenment. But I can tell you that the students that I teach, usually within the first two, three, four days of class, when I'm teaching classes multiple days, they all come in with stories of improvements and noticing things that are shifting and changing for them. So the more that you focus on the things that I share, I think you're going to see really good results. Thanks for the question, Karen. What's really important is that you develop a regular practice. If if you don't have any prior exposure like Karen has to other traditions, that's fine. Um, if you do have exposure like Karen has, that's fine too. That's essentially what this chapter one is getting at, is no matter what your background, whether you've studied other traditions of Buddhism or Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or, or you're an atheist or you have no uh, spiritual practice at all, these teachings and the way that I'm going to share them with you is approachable by anyone. There is no roadblocks, there's no hurdles, there's nothing at all. The only roadblock, the only hurdle that you're going to experience in this path is yourself, is your own dedication, your own commitment, your own complacency, right? Even people who've been practicing these teachings for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you probably have some degree of awakening along the path. You've probably seen certain level of peace. But, you know, we can get to a certain level of complacency because, yeah, we've been practicing for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And yeah, life's, you know, pretty okay. Just an occasional frustration or irritation or shyness or boredom or whatever. But don't allow that complacency to hold you back from really dedicating yourself in this program over the next few months and really rolling up the sleeves and diving in and learning and practicing. So what you should be doing is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation every day. 
And definitely once a day, if you can get in twice a day, or even some students of mine go up to three, four, five times a day, if they have the time. I did the first two weeks that was kind of like the unofficial part of the this group learning program where I recorded teachings on breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, because these are the two meditations that every single human being needs in order to attain enlightenment. There's lots of different meditations out there, but these are the only two that are absolutely required by every single person. There's other ones for other specific situations that we use, like for sexual cravings or other things that we use for realizing non-self and things like this. But those are kind of like on a case-by-case basis. But every single person absolutely needs breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So if you haven't heard those podcasts, it's really important that you go get into the podcast. I delivered one talk each for breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And then I did two guided meditations where one is breathing mindfulness meditation. It's about a 15 minute guided meditation, which you can extend for longer. And then there's a breathing mindfulness meditation with loving kindness meditation that is about 30 minutes long. And again, you can take that longer if you like. The timing that you meditate isn't as important as the results. When you're done with meditation, we're looking for a peaceful, calm, serene, a steady mind that's content. And if you've just started meditating or there's things that are going on in your life, you may not get that calmness and that peacefulness right off the bat. You know, it's it, meditation is like a bucket. It's an empty bucket perhaps now, or maybe it's halfway full. So you need to put some scoops of water into the bucket in order to fill it up. And as you're going through this program, if you're reading regularly, you're coming to this class and you're doing meditation, that would be, I would say, the bare bones minimum. If you could just do those three things, come to the class, read the book, and do meditation. Now, if you can add to that, maybe listening to some podcasts that I do, maybe watching some of the videos, taking the quizzes in the Facebook group, and reading the posts, and having some discussion, you know, real quickly, if you did all of those things, you know, that's like a full-time job. And if, if you're retired or you're out of work right now, or you independently wealthy, or you just have a not too many hours that, that you work, then maybe you have that time and that's great. You should do all those things. But if you just come to this class and you just read the book and you just meditate, you're going to see benefits for sure. And I would like to encourage all of you guys to do that as we go through the course. I may ask a question, David. So um, we talked about the, the universal love for beings, um, do no harm, and be a good moral person. And the way I interpret those last two is that the do, do no harm is literally you know, don't do anything bad and be a good moral person is you know, not go out there and try to do good all the time because what does that mean? But at least in your daily interactions, in your livelihood, as you go out there, um, do it with a good intention. But I was wondering if, if you could uh, maybe just, just, have I got that right? Discern between those and elaborate maybe a little bit. Yeah, so this will become more and more apparent. All three of these core teachings will become more apparent when we talk about the Eightfold Path. But let's just kind of dive into each one. So universal love of all beings. Right now, what you guys are thinking about most likely in terms of love 
is not actually true love uh, the way that we would practice love as non-attachment. We're going to get into that in chapter 14 in the book. So loving all beings literally means that, or, or universal love for all beings, it literally means that you have a genuine wish for peacefulness for all beings. You know, oftentimes the way that we understand love in the unenlightened state is it's, I love this person, therefore I want them to be with me because they make me happy. This is actually not love. This is selfishness. Is I want this person to be with me because they make me happy, right? This is wanting. This is attachment. This is desire. What true love is, is I love you, therefore I would like to see you be peaceful, Right? What happens in our relationships is we have all these expectations, all this wanting, all this sabotage that we put into the relationship. And this is what makes love so challenging for people. And it's because that in the unenlightened state, we're misunderstanding what true love really means and how, how to actually define love. So if we understand the true meaning of love, that it means a genuine wish for peacefulness for all beings, that's what universal love for all beings means. It doesn't mean that you agree with everybody's actions or everybody's speech or that you agree with, you know, what they do in their life, but you have a genuine wish for peacefulness for all beings. This is utterly important as part of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And I mean all beings. I mean, even that person that right now you feel gets under your skin so deeply, whether it's a family member or someone at work or in the neighborhood, we need to have a genuine peacefulness, a wish, a active goodwill towards all beings. This is universal love for all beings, human beings, as well as animals and all the other beings and all the other realms, which we'll talk about. You have to have a genuine wish for peacefulness for all beings. That's universal love for all beings. And then that moves into the second one, which is do no harm. This one is vitally important as a starting point for the Eightfold Path when we get into the second step, which is right intention. Because the underlying or overarching or core principle, the core teaching that the Buddha is sharing with us is awakening the mind to gamma, this natural law of gamma, cause and effect, action, result, we need to come from a place of harmlessness, right? The Buddha used this language. The mind has to have a mind of harmlessness. If the mind originates with intentions or thoughts or thinking of harmlessness, then we're less likely to have harm in our speech and our actions and all the other things. Eventually, you train the mind so well that you do have a genuine wish for goodwill for all beings. So you do have universal love for all beings, but you still need to practice harmlessness, no harm to other beings, but in the context of where we are today in modern society, no harm to the planet as well, right? We've caused a tremendous amount of harm, not just you and I, but throughout history over many thousands of years, we've caused harm to the planet. And in the, particularly in the last hundred years in the Industrial Revolution, we've put a lot of 
harm into the planet. And because of the natural law of gamma, that harm is now coming back to us with poor air quality, poor water quality, our food systems are really deteriorated, lots and lots of harm that is coming back to us by way of diseases and cancers, this coronavirus, all of these things that are happening in the world, whenever there's harm that you're, that you're seeing or you're experiencing, that's because there was harm that caused that. Because in order for us to receive any harm, there had to have been something to initiate that harm that's cause and effect or action and result. So this second core principle of do no harm is doing no harm to other people, no other beings like animals or, or things like this, but also doing no harm to the planet. Then the third core teaching of be a good moral person, right? Well, the first question someone might ask is, well, who's to decide what is moral and, and what's not? Well, what the Eightfold Path is going to lay out for you, along with the five precepts, is it's going to lay out a very clear uh, morality or practice of morality that you will be able to see, you will be able to understand, and you will be able to practice it to see that it's the truth for yourself. It's none of this guessing stuff, right? This natural law of gamma, it's all based on if we do harm, we receive harm. If we do wholesome things, wholesome things happen. This is why Gautama Buddha's teachings can't be misinterpreted for a very wise person who's looking at this very keenly. And here I'd like to use an example of same-sex relationships. In some traditions or in some communities within some traditions, people say that same-sex relationships are immoral, right? So they wouldn't be considered good morals. But if you understand the natural law of gamma and you look at it with a very wise eye, you look at it and you say, two loving, consenting adults that happen to be the same gender who are in a loyal, loving, committed relationship, are they harming anyone? And the answer that I get back is no. And you have to look at this for yourself. This is how awake Gautama Buddha truly was 2,500 years ago. He was so awake that 2,500 years ago, when he taught sexual misconduct, he didn't teach that same-sex relationships were immoral or, or, or not good morals. Because he understood the natural law of gamma, he understood of same-sex relationships. He talks about it in his teachings, but he doesn't say anything about it. He just says, there's men who don't identify with ma masculine qualities. There's women who don't identify with feminine qualities. And that's it. He just was kind of making people aware that that existed. So these good morals that the Buddha uh, will share with you in his teachings, they're independently verifiable. When you look at them, you observe them, you practice them and you see that they work and you reflect on them in relationship to this natural law of gamma. Yeah, thanks David, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And on the topic of what various traditions have in common, as well as, as those three, uh, I, I also have noticed that if you think that there's always a moral element to it, there's always a ethical code of some sort. There's always knowledge, the, the, the teaching of universal knowledge, which 
actually is wisdom once realized. And then thirdly, in, in some form, there's usually some kind of training of the mind. Now, this is something that Buddhism, uh, Buddha's teachings really emphasizes a lot more than perhaps Christianity, which, which does obviously involve prayer. And, uh, but think about it, it's, 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 it's the knowing what is wholesome, doing what is wholesome, and the mind being increasing our propensity to do what we know to be wholesome. Absolutely. Think of it. Uh, and, uh, um, and so the do no harm, well, that, that's something that is quite a big bang for buck on not doing harm. It's, 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 it's a lot, it's quite easy to sort of, you know, not commit murder when you leave the house, right? And um, it, it, as long as you know that that stealing is, is ultimately going to do harm, not a not accessible way for, for, for anyone really to access uh, the path, the stream, because the more uh, you you conduct wholesome morality, the, the clearer the mind is going to become. Now, so it's really about sort of clearing the way, clearing the way for a mental practice, and so um, that, that's that's how I think about it. And that, that's something they all have yeah. in common. That's something that you can teach to absolutely everybody: don't harm, you know, don't kill, don't steal. Yeah. And, you know, some of those basic teachings we see across all traditions. But one of the things I want to add here is as the mind awakens, you may, if you don't already have, you may develop the ability to read people's minds. You may have psychic abilities. You may have omniscience. You may be able to see the future. You, you start having these various powers that the Buddha talks about. And these are, are very noticeable as the mind awakens more and more. And this is another reason why I feel Gautama Buddha, you know, you need to be a good moral person to awaken the mind. But as people awaken the mind, they need that kind of moral, ethical conduct in order to kind of balance these special abilities that start to become more profound as the mind awakens. So if you have somebody who's got these psychic powers, but they're using it in scrupulous and corrupt ways to do harm in the world, then, you know, that that's kind of a conflict. So a really deep practitioner of these teachings, their mind is going to awaken more and more and more and more. And you kind of need that good morals on board to kind of temper any propensity or any interest to maybe use these things for ill-gotten gains. You know, if you do what Gautama Buddha taught and what, you know, a lot of people do as they awaken, is they don't don't even pay attention to those special powers of being able to communicate with spirits, omniscience, reading people's minds, all of these things. You know, we just maintain focus on our own practice. And yeah, those things start happening where you start reading people's minds and, and you start becoming aware of it, but you don't actually sit down and say, hmm, I'm gonna read Max's mind. What's he thinking right now? And oh, wow. Um, Max, I didn't know that you thought all those things, right? Like, like that's not how this is meant to be, where people who are really deep into their practice, they may be talking and discussing things, and they don't even pay attention to the fact they're reading people's minds. It's not like you sit down and read a book and it's a conscious decision. Oftentimes when this mind reading and this being able to see the future happens, it just happens by happenstance and you're just talking, 
but everyone else around you starts saying, are you reading my mind? Because you're saying and answering questions that they had before they even asked it. Or you even know they have a question before they even make an indication to raise a hand or something like this. So this moral code or this ethical conduct is so important as the mind awakens that we don't dive into being interested in using these these abilities that that develop as the mind awakens. Yes, it almost seems that it's, it's, it's like a, as the mind awakens, any impure moral conduct is is only going to immediately pull you back to exactly the, to, the, to this sense this this self. Um, this feeling of self. David, I have a question about uh, the meditations because I believe you uh, mentioned we probably shouldn't during these months or these weeks um, use other meditation techniques or um, apps, for instance, that we should try to concentrate on the uh, breathing, mindfulness, and the loving kindness. Um, any thoughts about some of the apps that are out there, though? Do you think, again, is this all more of a distraction? The important thing is, is that everybody is meditating, right? Ultimately, if you understand the goal, which is 80 or 90% of your meditation should be just the body, the mind, and the breath, because if we're using apps or music or guided meditations and things like this, it's only going to form attachment over time. And those things are not going to be around permanently. And if we base a meditation practice off of this one app or this one piece of music, and we do that for five, 10 years, but we haven't attained enlightenment because the mind's still attached, then when that's gone, your meditation practice is out the door because you've based your entire practice on this one app or this one music. So the goal is 80, 90% of the time, body, mind, and breath, because you're always going to have that with you all the time, whether you're in the hospital, whether you're hiking in the mountains or what have you. But understanding that the mind needs to gradually move in the direction of enlightenment. If somebody needs to use those things or is using those things, you know, that's understandable. The important thing is that you are meditating daily I would encourage you as we progress in this program and in your own practice that you gradually move your mind away from those things, but only you're going to know when is the right time for that. Initially, if you tried to do it kind of cold turkey right now, you'll probably have a few days where you know you won't be getting very good meditation and, and that's fine and, and things are going to start shifting and moving and feeling a little bit combobulated perhaps. But if you stick with it and, you know, give it a good week, two weeks and just really stick with it, I think you'll be able to develop a practice pretty quickly where you won't need anything other than the body, the mind and the breath. That's what's going to benefit you the most. But I always say 80 to 90 percent because, you know, as you get going that 10 or 20 percent, you know, it's nice to be able to go in groups and meditate with other people occasionally meditate with your life partner or some other person or maybe go to a gong sound bath or things like this. So there's other type of techniques out there that aren't just body, mind, and breath that can add some benefit, especially for beginner practitioners. But if you just keep the mind focused on the goal is to not hold on and latch onto those things, 
and move the mind towards just the body, the mind, and the breath, I think you'll be in good shape. Just don't kind of slow down and just kind of get rooted with that special music track or that special app. Try to move the, the mind towards just the body, the mind, and the breath. I think uh, meditation has been quite difficult for me in general. It's a lot of work. Karen and uh, others, one of the things I was thinking of doing is having like a midweek session where all we do is meditation, like on a Wednesday or something, where we have Zoom open and anybody w- would like to join can come in and do meditation. And, and get specifically help in meditation so that on Sundays it's the Dhamma talks and talking about the teachings. And then you're working to do meditation each day. But then on Wednesday, it's just a dedicated time to talk about meditation only and actually do meditation together where I can do a little bit of guiding and then kind of ease you into developing a, a, a more independent practice. So if that's something you guys are interested in doing, I'm willing to do that with you guys. And, I would- I, I mean, I've been for years trying to meditate, but I also have a lot of pain. So I have some, I have constant thoughts and things going through my head because I've got a terminal illness and I have so much pain. And it's very hard for me to meditate through the pain. Yeah. So, are you, um, are you working now or do you, are you, what's your schedule like? No, I'm not at the moment because okay. I, I was teaching. I'm an English teacher. I'm in Austria. Okay, that was my next question: is was what time zone are you in? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, we can definitely connect if you if we're not already messaging and connected by messenger, message me and we can set up a couple one-on-one sessions where I can help you one-on-one to get better established. Because my method of teaching meditation is there's the method of what we do with the mind but like you were hitting on about the pain what i do and what i focus on is helping you find what's right for you it's not about everybody doing it the way i do it in terms of the body positioning and so forth it's about helping you find what's right for you so on a one-on-one session i'll be able to more readily do that with you so if you message me we can set up something these evening times like this are pretty good for me because my son is asleep and everything else I'm doing in my normal days come to an end. So I just teach online in the evenings here in Thailand. Okay, yes, I would appreciate Yeah, just message me and, and we'll uh, set it up. Yeah, so, so this week and next week, you know, it's kind of like the chapter, you know, just kind of starting out the book. But by the time we get into the third, fourth, fifth chapter and beyond, we're really going to be getting into some real meaty topics that I'm going to be discussing and, and helping you guys with. So this week and next week, still kind of like a little bit informal, just kind of casual. But by the third, fourth and fifth week, we're really going to be diving into some deep teachings. And I imagine by that time, we'll have gotten together more as a group and more and more people will feel more comfortable to, to jump on and, and just kind of reminding themselves that there is this opportunity to learn, being able to ask questions and get help. And as you guys get more established with your meditation practice and comfortable with the virtual classroom, I think that you guys will have a great opportunity to learn more and more as we as we continue forward. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.